1: welcome to noon edition i'm bob zaltzberg editor of the herald times along with co-host mary Catherine carmichael from leadership bloomington monroe county and today we're going to talk about uh, what's going on with the indiana general assembly Uh, With us in the studio is Marjorie Hershey, professor of political science at Indiana University. And, of course, we fondly refer to her as our political correspondent here on The Edition. (laughs) We also have two legislators joining us. Uh, Joining us by phone is Anderson uh, Representative Terry Austin and also Columbus Representative Milo Smith will be here in the studio uh, very shortly. He's caught in traffic, but he'll be here. All right. So if you have, want to join us on the program, please phone 855 or toll free 877-285-9348. You can also join uh, join us on the website, wfiu.org slash Noon Edition. Well, Margie, great to have you back. Thank you. Great Thank to you. be here. Thank you very much. And Terry, it's good to have you joining us uh, on the phone.
2: Thanks so much. And I'm really glad to be here. And I appreciate the opportunity to Offer some Democratic points of view.
1: All right. And let's just let's start with that. Because now,
0: I, been... I, I want to say one other okay, thing right. about Terry before we get going. She's, she's kind of a hero in our household because uh, she was put in a very awkward position uh, some time ago where she had to cast a deciding vote um, regarding a, a very unfortunate um, bit of legislation. Terry, do you want to talk about that? Sure. Go ahead.
2: Um, This has been a couple of years ago. Um, and many of you recall the marriage amendment that was offered up in, uh, gosh, was this 2005 or 2000, no, 2006, I believe. Yeah, I think six. Or, and, and, um, or two, no, it was 2007, actually. And the Rules Committee, of which I am the only woman member, um, actually decided, voted, voted that amendment down. And it, uh, there was a great, deal of controversy over that particular vote and i would say some um some groups took the opportunity to sort of create a backlash in my community or try to create a backlash but you know, just didn't seem to take hold, and I think that the majority of voters at this point understand that when you've got an economic situation the way we have in Indiana, that the General Assembly should be spending their time on other things.
1: Mm-hmm. But yet, this year, uh, the same-sex marriage amendment is oh, yeah. going through the the uh, the Senate and the House. So, what what's you know, what are the prospects there? Is that is that going to make it to the voters at some point? Do you think?
2: Well, you know, it has to be voted on by two separately elected legislatures, Mm -hmm. so it's not eligible to come before the legislature again if it passes out of the Senate until um, this is 2011. It would have to be 2013 at the earliest. Mm -hmm. And you know, you never know what's going to happen between those from now until then. So we'll have to wait and see how public consensus continues to you know, unfold and where people are in that issue. I, I offered up an amendment to try to at least protect the concept of civil unions. Um, I'm happy to report that some Republicans did support that amendment, but ultimately it was defeated um, by, I think it was, oh, I don't even remember the vote, but there were a substantial number of both Democrats and Republican votes In support of that, so we'll see what happens. We'll we'll see what happens in the Senate because that's where the amendment currently is.
1: And and I think uh, it's fair to say that, you know, as a a newspaper, we actually have come out against that as a constitutional amendment. Um, And I, you know, the the uh, from a process standpoint, I'm going to ask uh, Marjorie to sort of weigh in on this too. I mean, the idea of taking what's already basically a law uh, in Indiana and then. Trying to enshrine it in the Constitution as a constitutional amendment um, seems like overkill and unnecessary to me. So,
3: mm-hmm.
1: have you have you been seeing more of these things from your perspective of you? Been hearing about more of these things.
4: Yeah, I definitely have. I think it's very interesting that, um, given that our Tea Party friends are very concerned about making sure that we get back to the uh, the the basis of the Constitution and the kinds of rights that the Constitution enshrines, the Federal Constitution is really very short. And uh, it's not very short because the founders sort of didn't have enough time to write a long one. It (laughs) was short because they wanted to make absolutely sure that uh, over time it could be um, tailored to the needs of of, um, changing times. And they obviously wanted only to be able to get those principles down that everybody could agree on. State constitutions, on the other hand, can be extraordinarily long. There are some state constitutions that prescribe what kind of public building the political parties have to hold their meetings in and whether they need to use Robert's Rules of Order, it's really worth asking um, whether we might not go back to the wisdom of the founders on this one and say, let's leave constitutions for the absolutely most important rights and not use them to take away rights that at some later point people might realize are, are lacking. Mm-hmm. Hmm.
1: I thought that was a good uh, – sort of a good arguing point for the tax caps as well, but yeah. You know, but that one that one passed with flying colors. So. All right. Our phone number is again eight five five zero eight one one eight seven seven two eight five nine three four eight. WFIU dot org slash noon edition. And we already have two callers, so let's go to the first one, and it's Mock. Mock?
3: Hi. Uh someone had mentioned civil unions. Could you explain uh what the difference is between marriage and a civil union?
1: Terry.
4: Well
2: I'm, sir, I WANT TO PUT A DISCLAIMER UP, I'M NOT AN ATTORNEY, um, AND I DON'T HAVE ANY LEGAL TRAINING AT ALL, BUT MY UNDERSTANDING IS THAT CIVIL UNIONS um, ARE A RECOGNIZED LEGAL ENTITY um, THAT it CAN BE PERFORMED, THAT BASICALLY GIVE FOLKS ALL OF THE RIGHTS AND PRIVILEGES AND ARE OFTEN RECOGNIZED um, AS SIMILAR TO A MARRIAGE WITHOUT what oftentimes people describe as the religious connotation um, that that marriage within a church provides. Um, a number of states provide for civil unions and in fact the amendment as it's currently worded, the one that's HJR 6, um, would actually make Indiana I believe the third most restrictive state in the country in terms of prohibiting any form of recognition Um, in terms of benefits either through civil or legal agreements or um, what might be characterized as similar to marriage. And so that that is my understanding. And again, I think it's an interpretation that the courts are going to continue to wrestle with and offer up um, their interpretation of. It's been said that it almost, it's almost guaranteed that this particular Um, language, if it continues to move forward, will result in some sort of court action and court interpretation.
0: Mark, is that really the question you wanted to ask?
3: The question that I wanted
0: to ask? Mm Yeah.
2: Well, I was wondering,
3: what are some of the specific differences between marriage and civil unions? In other words, uh, what things could a couple do if they were, say, just a couple did not have a civil union, if they did have a civil union? and if they were married
2: well and and again it may be subject to how if in fact civil unions um, were to become a recognized entity in indiana through statute probably part of that's going to be in the definition of what constitutes a civil union but for instance um, you would have automatic right of providing for medical um, the permission for medical treatment if you're married if I'm in an accident my husband automatically can step in and say to the doctors yes I give you permission to to save Terry's life or to operate on her um, currently uh, with even with civil partners or domestic partners um, you can't do that unless there is some specific agreement in writing that you know that you need to provide proof of that folks can use in that kind of circumstance. The other is you know I automatically inherit if or if my husband passes away I would automatically inherit any of our um, estate or his estate um, unless the will provides specifically for you know to be shared among children it depends on you know what the circumstances are, and in a civil union, that would that could become automatic. Um, that one partner inherits, you know, the estate of the other, unless there are other provisions that are made. So there, um, also visitation, hospital visitation, can be curtailed um, under in marriage. The spouse is entitled to visit, you know, regardless of family wishes. However, that's not the case with domestic partners, and it could be the case in a civil union. Those are just three off the top of my head, um, and I'd be happy to have another conversation with you offline because I really didn't prepare for this part of the conversation. <laughs> yeah, I we've gotten a little off
1: topic
0: here, issue,
1: right.
2: but I'm yeah. I'm happy to answer it, and I'm Mary Catherine. Can tell you how to get a hold of me. Okay,
1: that's great. All right, thanks, <laughs> thanks a lot for the reason. call. All right, eight five five zero eight one one eight seven seven two eight five nine three four eight, wfiu dot org slash noon edition. Al is next. Go ahead, Al. Thank
3: you very much. I want to comment regarding the Democrats and what they have done, specifically Peggy and Matt in terms of going to Illinois, and I wish them the absolute very best and all of the other Democrats in trying to stifle what. Um, our governor and everybody else has uh, done regarding uh, the public employees of the state of Indiana. The uh, news media has overplayed the vast um, amounts of money that some public employees receive, while many people, like retired teachers, firemen, policemen, don't really receive that much. And I can go back to the days when PL 217 was actually put into place. And when that happened, many of the public employees were on wages that absolutely were poverty-related wages. And we have at least accomplished some uh, area of uh, progress over the years to where people are being paid at least a reasonable living wage. And I don't want to see that uh, go back. And I really support these people, and I hope they will do their best.
1: All right, Al. Well, <clears throat> go ahead, Terry.
2: I'd like to just jump in, and because mm-hmm. you brought up the issue of wages. Um, one of the things that I think has been um, misrefered that have been some some way is that Hoosier families are doing great and in fact we're not. Our per capita income rank is 41st in the nation and I just want to say I'm getting a lot of feedback so I don't know if that's something on your end or if you guys are okay yeah. but I, I am pleased with feedback. Um, we're 41st in the nation and the truth of the matter is that that is one of the reasons that that in particular the house democrats felt that we needed to slow down many of these proposals that were on such fast track that there was very little time to really look at the impact on communities on families um we called it a war on the middle class but let me just share some statistics with you um one in three hoosiers are now low income and that means they earn less than 200 percent of the Federal Poverty Guideline, which is $36,000 approximately for a family of three, and that's using 2009 figures. Hoosier incomes have declined over the last decade. In 1999, our median household income in Indiana was $50,000, almost $51,000, and now our median family income is $44,000. We've continued to lose ground compared to many other states around us. And the truth is that Hoosier workers continue to earn a median wage lower than the average American and have throughout this past decade. So poverty is more prevalent in Indiana than in the rest of the U.S. One in every six Hoosiers now lives below the federal poverty guideline, which is for a family of four. $22,000, one in four. And that's why we're taking a stand because many of these proposals have been proven to drive down wages further. We do not want to be in a race to the bottom.
0: We should mention uh, on the phone is Terry, Representative Terry Austin, who is among the group of uh, Democrat uh, state representatives who have uh, left Indianapolis, left the State House, and have been uh, spending the last, are we up to five weeks now, Terry, in Illinois? Five weeks, yes. yeah.
1: And uh, we have also invited Milo Smith, a Republican representative from Columbus, who's on his way. So we hope that Milo's been a guest on this program before, and we're, we're eager to see him and have his perspectives on things. Um, Terry, I, I just want to ask you to connect the dots even a little bit more specifically, because you, know, you talked about the poverty levels in the state, and uh, one in three Hoosiers are low income, one out of six are under the poverty level. And you, know, you said some of these proposals would drive down wages even more. Could you be specific, connect the dots on why you Absolutely. felt the need? Mm-hmm.
2: Absolutely. Well, among, first and foremost, um, the issue that sort of was the straw that broke the camel's back was the right-to-work bill. But that was not the only reason or the only piece of legislation that caused the Democrats to say, stop, wait, we need to, we're going to leave the state if that's what it takes. To get a chance to have some input on this uh, and at least to give the public a chance to have some input and to understand what is happening. So right to work was certainly one of the issues and right to work states which by the way there hasn't been a single state that has passed right to work in the last 25 years. Oklahoma was the very last state. And in fact the committee testimony was such that the figures that have often been touted by um, the Indiana Chamber of Commerce, actually were disputed um, by a a professor of, in Oregon who basically has done either an entire research study or has had access to several research studies. He was brought in and he testified that basically said um, the jobs claim, the creation of jobs claim doesn't hold up it hasn't happened in other states and here's what we know the other thing we know from right to work states is that workers deaths are at fifty percent higher than the national average and so that's one issue the entire issue of collective bargaining is about what unions um, and the ability to organize um, as a profession or a group of workers has done to one help raise wages It's helped take children out of factories um, for teachers. Teachers couldn't even teach when they were pregnant. I mean, you had to, and this was as late as 70. I mean, many teachers basically, mid 60s to 70, basically were um, instructed that they had to leave the teaching profession when they found out they were pregnant. And so those are the types of progress, the types of progress that's been made under collective bargaining. I will also say that, For many unions um, and and collectively organized workers, they they do sit down with management. It doesn't always and hasn't always been a confrontational situation. I can tell you um, friends that I have who are leaders in their unions, and I'm not just talking about teachers' unions. I'm talking about um, UAW and some other. They sit down with management to help do the problem-solving and to help contain costs and and they're a part of the solution, and it's unfair to categorize them as a part of the problem. Quite honestly, the other thing I would say is, interestingly enough, since Al brought up the issue of Public Law Two Seventeen, does anybody recall who the governor was when Public Law Two Seventeen was passed?
4: Uh-uh.
2: Otis Bowen. Otis <laughs> Bowen, a bastion of liberalism, <laughs> to workers to give collective bargaining to teachers. So I thought that was worth noting because it's sort of been this mischaracterization that I think has been very unfair. Um, and in fact, in many places, teachers, teachers unions, and others have actually been very progressive and a part of the solution.
0: Terry, looking at this issue from thirty thousand feet, I've heard it said that if they are successful in uh, doing away with collective bargaining and unions, um, that that is kind of a de facto way of dismantling the Democrat Party, because really unions serve as the most organized aspect of the Democrat Party. What are your thoughts on that?
2: Well, and I, there is some truth to that, uh, Mary Catherine. When you compare the amount of money that other corporate interests have given— The State Chamber of Commerce, both the state right to work and the national right to work groups, the Indiana Manufacturers Association, uh, aiming higher. It in no way compares to the amount of money that has come from organized labor, quite honestly. And I think we've got to talk apples to apples and not apples to oranges here. So those kinds of claims that, oh, all they are is a, a election funding mechanism. Um, while it's true that organized labor mostly supports Democrats, the truth of the matter is what it does is it helps equal out the voices. And I know that many folks, regardless of whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, are, have serious concerns about the unlimited amounts of money that are now available to influence the election process as a result of the Supreme Court ruling. So we've got to make sure that there's a fair and level playing field. And if you dismantle unions and don't even allow people to pay union dues to their check, which is a voluntary mechanism, then you can pretty much assure that you're going to basically destroy or completely undermine a, our two party system.
1: All right. Um, we're talking with. Uh Terry Austin, a Democratic representative from Anderson uh, on the phone, a Columbus representative, Republican Milo Smith just arrived. He's here with us now. We're going to take a break. Let him get settled. Uh, Marjorie Hershey is also here with us, uh, our political correspondent, professor of political science at (laughs) Indiana University. Uh, You're listening to Noon Edition. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, editor of the Herald Times, along with my co-host, Mary Catherine Carmichael from Leadership Bloomington, Monroe County. We're talking about the Indiana General Assembly today. Marjorie Hershey is here, professor of political science at Indiana University. Uh, Republican Representative Milo Smith from Columbus just joined us for the second half of the program. And we've also been talking with Anderson Democrat, uh, Terry Austin, uh, a representative who uh, has been with us for the first half of the program. and She'll stay with us for the second half as well. If you have questions, Phone us at 855-0811 or 877-285-9348. The web address, WFIU.org slash Noon Edition. I wanted to ask uh, Marjorie Hershey about this sort of time in politics. We've seen uh, protests and you know virtual riots in Wisconsin and Madison. It was very uh, very passionate arguments in Madison um, the uh, democrats from the house here have been out of the state house for 5 weeks uh, in their own sort of protest trying to negotiate some issues uh, ohio had issues um, is this uh, have we seen anything like this before in in history of state politics?
4: Well, we've, uh, we've seen it from time to time, but it's clear that there is a national move now. Um, I think it's understandable as well, because when you take a look at what's happened in elections over the last decade, in 2004, the Republicans did very well. In 2006, there was a Democratic wave. In 2008, there was a Democratic wave. In 2010, there was a Republican wave. We've seen a lot of volatility in elections in recent years. And I think that uh, party leaders in various states are beginning to realize that they may just have a two-year window in which they can do what they want with the majority. And given that that's the case, uh, if you're a party leader, you'd better get your wish list um, established real fast. Um, As the parties polarize, we've seen greater influence in both parties from the extremes, And um, the pro-union, anti-union debate is really a very fundamental debate between the parties. It's existed really ever since the beginning of labor unions. But I think in a whole series of states, and in Pennsylvania as well, and really almost across the country, we've seen both parties throwing down their markers and saying that, we had better establish this principle as quickly as we can, and of course it's partisan as well as principled. Um, labor unions are a major supporter financially and in terms of person power for the Democratic Party, and the Chamber of Commerce and Small business are major supporters of the Republicans. Mm-hmm. Well,
1: th- th- let me uh, sort of follow up with you, and then uh, both Milo and Terry can weigh on, on this. I mean, as a as a citizen, uh, a person, who, a Hoosier, somebody who lives in the state and this nation, the the notion of every two years having major pieces of legislation that might, you know, legislation might pass in two years, and then two years later it might get rescinded, something totally different direction. Then two years later it might get rescinded again, and, and or repealed and go a different direction. Mm-hmm. We're seeing that in Washington now with health care, mm-hmm. uh, where, you know, the uh, Obama administration and the Democrats passed national health care, some kind of health care bill, and okay. now the Republicans are, yeah, are calling it, you know, Obamacare and want to repeal it. I mean, as a as a citizen, that, that doesn't seem like very good government to me.
4: Okay, except it's the government that we're asking for. Um, you know, if, as with Pogo, um, if we are looking for the enemy, it is us. The issue here is that we're closely divided as a nation. Um, We have pretty equal numbers of Democrats and Republicans, and so it's fairly easy to get wave elections. The thing that's interesting is that uh, we have changed from uh, a nation that had fairly closely divided congressional districts that resulted in a fairly closely divided nation To a nation that has pretty one-sided congressional districts that offset each other because there are about equal numbers of very strong Republican and very strong Democratic districts. And so that's why we can get these very strong swings um, as the parties have polarized. Many elected representatives find that their main competition is not going to be in the general election from the other party because their district is fairly one-sided. It's going to be in the primary mm-hmm. from people who are more extreme than they are in their own party. And that means that the representatives are pulled to the extremes increasingly. So with this closely divided nation, when we have independents swing to one side and then to the other – We tend to get more extreme legislation. Mm -hmm. It is probably a bad idea for government because of the fact that what we need from law is some level of predictability. People who are business people, people who are uh, taxpayers, need to have a sense that uh, in two years things are not going to be the exact opposite of what they are now. But the solution for it is is simply in our hands. Uh, If we're equally divided and we're swinging back and forth this readily. We're the ones who are causing it.
5: Mm -hmm. I wanted to get your reaction. Well, thank you. Well, (laughs) Professor, I disagree just a little bit. I think if you – our forefathers were really pretty smart when they developed our Constitution when they wrote it. And if we're having swings every other year, it makes it almost impossible to have a constitutional amendment, which they didn't want us to do in the beginning. And we did just do one on property tax caps. But I want to – go back a little bit further, it's about elections, too. And we shouldn't be able just to walk out of the chamber because we're in the minority. I was in the minority the first two terms I served. I never walked out. Now, have we done that in the past? Absolutely. Do we want to do it in the future? Absolutely not. And the radio observers can't tell, but I have a beard that I haven't had for years and I'm growing it out of protest and I started it when the Democrats walked out and I said, I'm not going to shave it until they come back and I hope I don't look like Rip Van Winkle when that occurs. But I also might keep that beard if they return or when they return and we have no idea when they're going to return or if they'll return before a special session. So I may keep that beard so that we pass a rule and I hope Representative Austin will support me on this that neither house can do this again. Because I'm not an attorney, but I think it's a violation of our state constitution, which specifically says in Article 4, Section 9, that we must hold our district meeting or our meetings in the General Assembly. We don't have any choice about where we're supposed to be, and we're supposed to be there through April 29th. So I think it's a constitutional issue that they are – they're not fulfilling their oath when they said they would follow the Indiana State Constitution when they took their oath.
0: Why would the Republicans walk out in, in, that, in your body of the House? You have a Republican-governed Senate for the last 40 years that's going to undo any unpopular legislation that comes out of your side of the House.
5: But there is another side. There's con- there's the Senate and there's also the governor, as you said. And we have had uh, a majority in the Senate for quite some time. But we also – that means that both parties need to work together to get any legislation passed. And the only two things that we have to do this session are redistricting and passing a balanced budget, which I believe all caucuses agreed to without raising taxes.
0: Well, hasn't this been a a tactic that's been used both by Republicans and Democrats as a way to prevent the tyranny of the majority when it comes to that?
5: It is a tactic that's been used in the past. Excuse me. And I have not been a party to that. And I believe I'm told in the last 10 years that we've used this a couple of times to go to caucus, but we stayed in the General Assembly in the building. And I just think it is wrong to leave the state. When you can't get your way – the way you pass bills – and I did the first two terms I was there. You stood up at the podium. You convinced your people on the other side of the aisle you had a better idea than they did. And Representative Austin and I worked together on more than one occasion where we agreed on a lot of things. But we had the debate. Right now there is no opportunity for us to have debate even though we have uh, – the speaker has sent some bills to committee. Uh, just so we could have something to talk about, so we could prepare and have testimony from our constituents without us voting on them.
1: Okay. Um, I want to bring Terry Austin back on and and just ask, you know, when do you expect to come back and what's going to make you come back? I mean, what what will be the trigger that brings the Democrats back?
2: Let me go back to something, if I could, that Milo said um, in his beginning comments. And Milo, I'm glad to join you on this show, and I hope things are going well, and I hope your beard doesn't get too long, yeah. quite honestly. I was hoping you could see it
5: today, but I don't see you in this room.
2: <laughs> no, I'm not. I'm weighing in by phone. One um, wanted to say, I you may or may not have heard this, but Chief Justice Randy Shepard was actually asked a question yesterday. I believe he was in Vincennes or Valparaiso 1 um, at a speaking engagement, and somebody asked him, from the audience about uh, the the fact that the lack of a quorum um, could result in a legal challenge or a lawsuit, and his response was that the U- Indiana Constitution permits um, the issue of denying a quorum. It is constitutionally projected, and so there. I don't. I even if they wanted to try to do a rule. Representative Milo, I'm not sure that actually it would be legal um, under the auspices of the Indiana Constitution. That being said, um, let me just say that I, all of my colleagues, all 37, 38, 40 of them, want, are looking forward to the opportunity to, to come back to Indiana and to engage in, a, in an earnest Negotiations and debate, and and look forward to an atmosphere of compromise. And I'm not gonna get into throwing stones at one side or another at this point. But it's sort of like a marriage. Let me just say this: there will be times that my husband may say something to me, and he thinks he's paying me a compliment. And you know what? I hear it exactly the opposite. That's sort of how things have been in the General Assembly. One folks. One side thinks they're extending um, an atmosphere of bipartisanship and compromise. The other side feels that that's not been the case. But more importantly, we are a citizen legislature, and as such, we have a limited capacity to do highly complex, high-profile, high-impact bills in a short time frame, and it. It's by giving folks an opportunity to understand these pieces of legislation, to look beyond the immediate, to think about the impact down the road. That's what real public policy is about. It's gauging the impact of the decisions that you make. And, and the best public policy, in my opinion, is formed when you govern from the middle.
0: You know, in any marriage, once in a while, somebody needs to sleep on the couch. (laughs) Or (laughs) compromise. Milo,
1: Milo, I want to give you the opportunity for a a quick response. If you have one, we're going to have to go to the phones here real quick. Yes. uh
5: Yes. Representative Austin, I agree we need to work together, and I I don't want to throw stones either, but I would pray that we can work together, both of us have influence in our caucuses, that we can adopt a rule so this never happens again. We need to find a solution so that neither side will ever walk out again. And there are no consequences to not following the Constitution, as I stated in Section 9, which said we're to conduct our meetings in the General Assembly.
1: All right. Let's go to the phones. Uh, Gail is on the line. Gail, you've been very patient. Thank you.
2: Oh, hi. hi. Um, I am a homeschool mom, and we have been studying the political situations in Indiana and Wisconsin as part of our curriculum with government. And my son came up with an interesting question for you both. Um, would the Founding Fathers be
4: proud of your actions or disappointed?
5: Disappointed.
4: May I, <laughs> may I offer a suggestion about that, too? I think it's wonderful that your homeschool includes a discussion of, of the founding fathers, and I think that it would be very helpful to point out that the founding fathers were not major fans of the concept of majority rule. I have a lot of students in my classes who, when I ask them, so what is democracy? They tell me majority rule, and I, and I hear James Madison whirling in his grave. Um, <laughs> we We have a constitution that is set up specifically with separation of powers, checks and balances, as means of checking on an untrammeled majority. The founders were very fearful of the possibility that, as a libertarian friend of mine likes to say, Democracy is two wolves and a sheep voting on what they're going to have for dinner. You know. um, this, the, we, we don't pay legislators to pass bills. We pay legislators to represent districts. Representing districts is a pretty broad concept, as, as I'm sure Representative Sampson is, is very um, struck by. You, you can pass bills. You can prevent bills from being passed that you believe to be against the interests of your constituency. Um, being present to pass bills um, is one part of a representative's life, but it's not the end of a representative's life.
1: All right. Milo
5: Smith, well again, there are, <coughs> excuse me, there are two bills we have to pass this session, <coughs> excuse me, and every other session, long session, we have to pass a balan- a budget that 's balanced and doesn 't raise hopefully it does never raises taxes, but it has in the past okay and i didn 't know any of our founding fathers personally, so all I can do is is try to interpret what 's been written about them.
4: Well, they've written a lot themselves, actually, Mr. Smith. And uh, the Federalist Papers is is a pretty lengthy volume, but I'd certainly commend it. It's it's a fascinating one.
1: Uh, Terry Austin, reaction. I'm an
2: educate. I'm an educator, and I have many friends who also homeschool. <clears throat> and I want to applaud you first of all because it is a tremendous commitment to do that. I would also say, you know, I don't know whether I would say that they're disappointed or proud, but what I would also say is that. They, Mary Catherine is right, or whoever said, whoever said this, we are elected to represent our districts. We're not elected out of Indianapolis. We're not elected out of Washington. And, in fact, I know that many of these bills are going to be very harmful to my community. And, in fact, it's incumbent upon me to take any and all steps necessary to protect them. I will also share, and I hope you're going to share this story with your son, um, that it was even Abraham Lincoln, believe it or not, who, when he was in the General Assembly in Illinois, actually jumped out of a third-story window in Springfield to prevent a quorum. So, I don't know that he ran to Indiana, but he left to prevent a quorum.
4: So, <laughs> Good thing he didn't kill himself. Goodness,
2: <laughs> I know. It's, well, and it's something that you don't take lightly. You, it's, it's something that you should only use after you've exhausted all other means. If, in fact you feel strongly that there is no other course of action, and it's my hope that we can resolve these differences, find some common areas of agreement, and find a way to move these bills forward.
1: That will really benefit Hoosiers. Uh, let me. Um, I want to go to, to Bob on the phone in just a minute, but I want to ask him to be patient for just a minute long because I want to give Milo Smith the opportunity. Um, Terry Austin has said a couple of times um, Democrats are doing this because the legislation that was going rapidly through uh, would be harmful to Hoosier workers, and I want to get your perspective. Do you think that the collective bargaining okay. issues, right to right to work, the different legislation would be harmful to? Working what, Hoosiers.
5: I don't believe it would be, and I kept hearing a chant from the organized labor who are there every day telling us it's time to go and voicing their opinions very loudly that they're criticizing us for for uh, not increasing the funding and public education. And they said that we need to cut, cut, cut. Well, if we don't cut, 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 we'll have to raise, raise, raise taxes. And so, you know, we have – to balance that act out, and i don 't believe that what we 've done is harmful and, and also I believe representative Austin uh, could share this opinion with me we 're down to resolving our issues on almost every bill except for twelve sixteen which is a public labor bill. is that correct representative austin
2: well milo i 'm afraid to speculate at this point and and I hope that's the case, but again um, y- you know there' So many things get said publicly that may be contrary to what's being said privately. Um, And I don't mean to say that folks are trying to be um, misleading or deceitful, but sometimes negotiations are best kept private until you – because one side or the other may inadvertently cause distress or create problems down the road, and it kind of sets negotiations back. So let's just say that I'm hopeful that all of the bills are close to being resolved and that we'll continue to work through some of these differences. How's that?
1: Thank you. All right. Let's go to the phones. Uh, we have <clears throat> three callers waiting to talk to us. Bob is first. Bob.
3: Uh, hello there. Hi. Yes. Uh, I'm wondering uh,
5: how well informed were the constituents, uh, I guess, in the process of, of campaigning, you know, for the last election, uh, of just what it is that is uh, being uh, uh uh, attempted to uh, have uh, uh, pushed through. Uh, um, were the were the voters informed of, of, of the agenda that is being pursued?
1: go ahead, Terry. I'll, sure.
2: just, I'll just tell you that uh, the governor himself called for the right to work bill to not be brought down. He said we did not campaign on it. It's a discussion for another another time and another place. I will also tell you that the elimination of collective bargaining was never mentioned as a campaign issue, and in fact, it's something that I think we ought to agree to take off the table so that one, Hoosiers can become more informed, and then we can talk about it if if that's the road we want to go down in the upcoming election.
5: It's Representative Smith speaking. It's my understanding, Representative Austin, that that has been taken off the table for this session uh, with the exception of sending it to a summer study committee so that we could have more debate, more dialogue to determine what's best for our constituents all across the state. Mm-hmm. Did you? Did you-
2: um, I, would, I would disagree, and I'll tell you why. Um, the elimination of collective bargaining except for wages and wage-related benefits was never an issue for teachers in the upcoming campaign or in the past campaign.
5: I was addressing right to work, that specific issue.
2: Right to work, yes, but the other issue that I said, collective bargaining across the board, um, whether dues can be deducted, even project labor agreements, none of that was brought up as an issue in the 2010 general election campaign.
5: And again, Representative Smith speaking. We have a lot of freshmen in our caucus now, and almost all of them tell me that they raised those issues back home in their campaigns. And a lot of them were upsets over setting Democrats, powerful Democrats with seniority. And most of them said they raised those issues, and that's how they got elected.
1: Seems like we could could, uh, look into that. Yes. (laughs) Yes, it's <laughs> a good good task for a media outlet. I think. Mm-hmm. All right, eight five five zero eight one one eight seven seven two eight five nine three four eight wfiu dot org slash noon edition. Kathleen is next on the line. Kathleen,
2: yes, yes, thank you. Um, I'm so glad you're having this conversation. Um, I root for the Democrats to do what they need to do to protect working people, and I would like to say, um, I think it's interesting. When uh, the legislature can vote for its own increase in salary, and then some of them do not want other working people, public or private, to have the ability to set some working conditions as collective bargaining and right to work. Thank you very much, and good luck. All
1: right. Thank you, Kathleen. An,
2: you know, she raises an interesting point, because the General Assembly does set its own rules and enforces its own rules and and we also do vote on our own pay salary um, although it doesn't happen frequently and it it did Time strike me judges. throughout this debate that why is it that it's it's okay for us to be under a separate set of rules um, when it's not for other public employees
5: i agree and uh Rep. boston before i was elected uh, when I was running for this office, I was told that there was a four-for-one uh, retirement plan, which wasn't anywhere else in state government. Uh, there was uh, health care for life, and if you happened to get a divorce while you were setting, your your ex-spouse would have health care for life. And the reason that those things were done, I'm told, was because there was no pay increase for a number of years, and I don't know whether it was 20 or more the salary was 11600 plus all of those other benefits. So one of the first things I voted for as a freshman was that we would treat ourselves like other state employees and we would have full disclosure of how we were being compensated and our compensation is tied to a percentage of what the local judges make and we are not accepting a salary increase. And if you, if you haven't heard that, we, the Republicans, are not supporting a salary increase this year or next year.
2: Right. Right. Well, and while we're talking about salary, because I know this is an issue that was brought up earlier, I want to make sure that everybody understands that the members of the Indiana Democratic House Caucus are not accepting a single day's pay from the minute they left the state house. And in fact, um, the many of them who already there are paychecks were in the pipeline for that particular week. They have actually written checks, and those checks will be turned over to the state in
5: full uh, reimbursement of that first week that was already paid. And Rep. you also talked about the per diem pay. It's not the pay for setting as a state representative. We receive most, if not all, of our salary in the first three weeks we're in session, and that money has already been deposited in everyone's account. And that may be something that we change, Terry, in the future, is that we don't pay ourselves the second half of our salary until we pass a balanced budget
1: at on April 29th.
2: Or until the session ends. Yeah. Make everybody either until the either
1: one.
5: Agreed. Maybe we can work together so. on that.
1: <laughs> All right, let's go back to the phones and Wayne. Wayne?
5: Hi, about teachers and labor unions. You know, there's a good reason why that great labor union leader, George Meany, he, he, he joined President Franklin Roosevelt to say that, that government workers should not be allowed to have unions. And the reason for that is that people elect the government— Unions are people, and and the unions are acknowledged
3: to be the greatest contributor, the greatest allies of the Democratic Party. So
5: the unions, in large part, control the Democrats. So when the teachers' union is negotiating with the Democratic politicians, they are negotiating with people who are beholden to them. Instead of having an adversary across the bargaining table, they have a subordinate across the bargaining table. It has been disastrous for education, and it's got to end.
1: All right. Thank you, Wayne. Thank you for your comments. May I have a quick respond to that?
5: I am not against any form of union. I my position is that you ought to have a choice whether or not you belong to a union. When I was a kid, I worked at Cummins Engine Company, and and I'm now told that I didn't have to join the union. But I, had, I was told then I had to join the union, pay dues, and the union, and there's good reason for unions' existence, to represent the people they work for. And just a real quick story, in 1971, Cummins had a three-month strike, and they had 12,000 employees in, in 1971. They were out for three months. They lost a lot of contracts to their competitors. The management of that company said, this will never happen to me again, and they opened a new plant in Jamestown, New York, and Charleston, South Carolina. Now we have 6,000 employees 40 years later in Columbus, Indiana. And unions and the companies need to work together so that, so that the companies can be profitable and share the benefits of that success with their employees.
1: All right. Terry?
2: I agree with Milo. Um, and... But right now we do not have forced union membership however what people do have to do except for teachers they have to pay because unions are forced to bargain for everyone whether you're a union member or not so everybody benefits from the negotiations process and the benefits that are then agreed upon and is there asked to help con- contribute and support that work that everybody benefits from and to I me, mean, I don't think that's unreasonable. It's sort of an oper- – it's saying if I'm going to benefit, I have an obligation to help pay my, my portion that gives me um, a, an improved standard of living. Uh,
1: all right. All right. Thank you very much. Um, we're going to – I'm going to go to Dan very quickly. But, Dan, this has got to be a very quick question because we've, we've got just three minutes to go.
3: Dan? Mm-hmm. Uh, during the Civil War, um, I believe it was Illinois elected a uh, an anti-war state legislature, and the Republicans walked out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's kind of ironic, but maybe a necessary, but messy, but necessary part of democracy.
1: All right, Dan. Thanks for the comment. Okay, we've got about three minutes to go, and I want to give each of you a chance to sort of sum up uh, where we are, because uh, this is obviously a very hot topic, so... Uh, uh, Milo? Well, well oh, go ahead, let's Terry. let Terry go, go first. Well, I haven't seen her for a while. Right. Well,
2: <laughs> Milo, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, you no, go, no. go ahead, Terry.
1: No, please. Go ahead, well, Terry.
2: It's my hope that when we do come back together, we can do so in an atmosphere of trust, respect, and dignity. It is, and, and again, I'm going to use a marriage analogy. Once you've entered into marital therapy or counseling, one of the first rules is you don't bring up the past. And the same thing goes. As a teacher, I learned a long time ago when I taught emotionally handicapped kids, which, by the way, was the best training ground for the general assembly. <laughs> ever have, uh, uh,
5: mine's being an elder at church.
2: Uh, <laughs> is that you don't bring up the behavior of yesterday because every day starts fresh. Both of us need to impress upon our colleagues and our leaders that this is a clean slate. We don't need comments at the mic or things that basically innuendos or comments from either side about what has transpired up to this point. Let's start fresh. Let's build those relationships that have been lacking in the first half, and let's try to move this forward for the benefit of the people of Indiana.
5: I have a similar closing comment, Terry. Uh, Two weeks ago, we had a sermon in our church about forgiveness and said, if you're mad at someone, you must forgive them. And I thought to myself, am I mad at the Democrats? And I'm not mad at you guys. I'm just a little bit frustrated that we're not able to do our business. And so I don't think I'm mad and I have anything to forgive about. But we do need to work together and not uh, s- snap at each other when you guys do come back. And I pray that's
1: very, very soon, Terry. All right. We have I one. Hope, oh, go hope ahead. So we have one, so one more minute. Marjorie, you, can you sum I, this up?
4: I, I would be delighted. It's a privilege. Um, <laughs> I think that the big challenge that all of us face in a democracy is balancing majority rule with minority rights. What the founders were very concerned about is that majority rights are important up to the point where they start to take away a minority's rights. And that is just as undemocratic um, as is any other threat to democracy. But in the end, I think what I would say is that uh, you and I, the voters, the people who go to the polls and who look at these candidates and what it is that they stand for, are the ones who need to step up to the plate. If we don't want more polarization, if we don't want more extremism, either in legislatures or anywhere else, then we have to be the ones to say, all right, I need to find out who are the extremists and who are the moderates, and I need to make my choice heard. Um, In the end, it's up to us. Okay,
1: thank you for that. That's a good good summation. All right, Uh, we are out of time. I want to thank our guest today, Barnjorie Hershey, professor of political science at IU, and also two members of the Indiana General Assembly, Terry Austin and Milo Smith. For Mary Catherine Carmichael, producer Dan Goldblatt and engineer Mike Pashkash, I'm Bob Zaltzberg. Thanks for listening.
5: Thank you.